Dear church family, as we gather for worship this evening, we hear our Lord's call to worship from Psalm 119, the first four stanzas. Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Please turn with me in the scriptures to the book of Psalms and the 14th Psalm, Psalm 14. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation, oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. So far, the, the reading of God's word. Dear church family, last week we considered the theme, lasting comfort. A comfort that is vital to know in this life already, if it's going to be well for the life to come. The Catechism then in question two of, uh, of the Heidelberg Catechism highlighted three things that are necessary to know, not just with our heads, but with our hearts, our minds, our beings, so that we might be certain of that lasting hope and comfort. And the second question then goes on to explain it. Namely, first, how great my, my sins and miseries are. And second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. And third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such a deliverance. This week, as we move into the first section of the Catechism, namely how that it's necessary to know how great my sins and miseries are, we turn to we turn now to Lord's Day two to questions uh, three through five, which you can find on page twenty eight in the the back of the Psalter. Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of the law of God. Question four, what, what doth the law of God require of us? 
Answer, Christ teaches us that briefly in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And then question five, canst thou keep all these things perfectly? In no wise, for I am prone to hate God in my neighbor. Catechism draws our attention to the fact that it's the law of God that is going to um, speak into our hearts, our minds, our lives, says the Catechism, and it's going to show us, it's going to show me how great my sins and misery are. What do we mean by the law? The Catechism goes on in question two to give a summary of the law in terms of what Christ said, to love God above all and our neighbor as ourself. We know narrowly the, this, the word law can direct our attention to the, to the Ten Commandments as we find them in Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20. And as the law, as we read it Lord's Day after Lord's Day in the morning service, it's a reminder, it's a reminder of, at the beginning of the very first verse of the, of Exodus 20, that the Lord is the one who redeems the people. And in redeeming them, he then gives them the law as a means to live by, how to, how to live for him. But it's also a law that is used to convict us of our sin. It should, at least. For we so often do not serve him alone. We often raise up other gods before us, whether in our mind or in physical ones. We so often conjure up false images and perceptions of of the Lord, of the one true God. We desire to worship him as we please rather than how he would have us to worship. We so often misuse or abuse his name. We often desecrate his his holy day, failing to worship him in spirit and in truth, enjoying the rest that is to be, that is found in Jesus Christ alone. We so often are disobedient to those in authority, positions of authority in our lives, whether it's parents, employees, teachers, civil authority. We're so often, we find ourselves devaluing life, hating others, despising. We find ourselves given to idolatry, often taking what is not ours or misusing what the Lord has given to us. Failing to speak truth into our own life or into the lives of others. So often coveting. Not making the Lord our number one passion in this life. 
This term law, though, can, can have a bit of a broader use in the Old Testament. This word is Torah, and it could, it could be referring to the five books of Moses, which are instructive for us. Deuteronomy being a, a, an exposition of the, the Ten Commandments that we just walked through. But even more broadly speaking, this word law in, in the scriptures can be used for the entirety of the scriptures. For example, in Psalm 119, that, that psalm that highlights and, and uses a number of terms and phrases to describe the, the law, the word of God, in those first few verses that we read together at the beginning of the service, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of God. And then verse 2, blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with their whole heart. The law of God, his testimonies are being paralleled together. And in this general sense, this word law refers to the whole counsel of God. And therefore, when the Catechism directs our attention and, and tells us that we are going to learn and know and come to a realization of how great our sins and miseries are from the law, it's directing us to all three of these areas. It's the whole Word of God as it's preached, as it's taught, as it's read, as it's studied, that's going to, by, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, that's going to show us God's perception of who we are before Him. How great and ugly our sins are in, in His sight. So tonight as we, as we turn to the passage that we read from Psalm 14, we get a picture, we get, we get a, we have the scripture testifying to us tonight what the all-seeing God sees of us by nature. As he looks down from heaven on humanity, in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our frailty, in the midst of our ability to even see our own need, he testifies to us that he sees our sinfulness. He, he sees into our hearts. He sees that we are that fool. But the very fact that we have this psalm and the whole of Scripture also testifies to the reality that God desires to have a relationship. He desires to restore sinners back to himself. And so he gives us his penetrating assessment of who we are. Namely, that there is none that doeth good. No, not one. And that we are not just people who don't do good but we willfully engage in and carry out sinfulness with intention and purpose. But the Lord goes on to recognize, recognizing our sin, but he also, he also then demonstrates that there is another way. There is a his powerful response to our sin as he exposes it and as he 
addresses it. So our theme this evening is the Lord's searching gaze on foolish sinners. The Lord's searching gaze on foolish sinners. And we want to look in the first place at his penetrating assessment. And then in the second place, his powerful answer. In verse 2 of our psalm, we read, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. The Lord. It's in all caps. Jehovah, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God the one who desires and delights to have relationships with his image bearers, the ones that he created in his image. He looks down. He looks down from heaven, for he is the high and lofty one. He is the one who is transcendent, who is altogether holy, just, and perfect. He looks down. Even tonight, he's looking down on each of us as we gathered, uh, as we gathered here for for worship. And he, when he looks, he never looks just as something to do, but he's always looking with purpose and intention, which in turn turns into action. This word that we find in the Hebrew describing his looking down, when it's used of the Lord, we find the Lord doing one of three things in response to what he sees throughout the scripture. He will either, as in response to his looking to what he sees, judge the wicked, or he will send deliverance for his people, and often in conjunction with sending deliverance, he sends his blessing on the righteous. The Lord's look is always with intention and purpose to judge the wicked, to send deliverance, or to send deliverance. And that's his goal tonight as his word comes to us, as he searches our hearts, as he looks into our hearts this evening. It is to also act. He desires us, as we are exposed, to turn to him for deliverance. But if we don't, if we never turn, we can anticipate his just judgment. And given who the Lord is, as he looks down from heaven, we want to note three things about what this means. In the first place, we we know that his look is never arbitrary. It's with intention and purpose. And and the psalmist describes this in in verse 2. He looked down from heaven upon the children of men, and he was looking to see. He was looking to see two things. He was looking to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. 
He's looking for people who, who were understanding, who are acting prudently and circumspectly, given what they should know. The Lord is searching to see if there are those among the children of men who, as they consider and pay attention to the knowledge that the Lord has given to them, are they responding to that knowledge? And the Lord has revealed himself to us in many, in many ways. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation all around us is, is calling out to us. There is a God and he's glorious and he's beautiful. He's worthy to be served. Romans 1.20 says something similar. The, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, even as eternal power and Godhead so that we are without excuse. But not only does the general revelation of that we find in creation speak to us of God's existence, but the Lord in his grace and mercy has given us his word. He's given us this book that speaks to us from the beginning verse that there is a God to the closing chapter of, of the Bible that he exists. And he's worthy to be served. And for many of us, we've had the privilege of studying and reading this word year after year, day after day. We've been taught it. We've been instructed in the truths of it. And the question is, how are we responding? That's the question that the Lord's seeking to answer tonight for as he looks down on us to see how we are responding how we are understanding this this word our knowledge of his existence are we doing so with prudence with understanding seeking him or are we rejecting him children are you seeking the lord or are you running from him And the Lord tells us this. He's, he's looking to see if there were any that understand and seek. For when we, if we understand that God is and He exists, we will seek Him. The Lord, our covenant God, is looking to see if those who are seeking Him, those who are placing the Lord as the first in their lives, He's seeking to understand, is there any who have made God their number one passion for this life and the life to come? And the fact that the Lord is, is, actually, is looking to see in the, monks, in the midst of the children of men, are there those who are seeking him? Speaks to the reality that he delights to be sought. He desires to be sought. But as God looks, we also have to know that he looks with a perfect knowledge. So not just an arbitrary look, but he also, he also now looks with perfect knowledge. His assessment of what he is going to see is going to be just and accurate. For he is an omniscient God. 
He knows all things. Children, he sees you every moment of every day. And he understands why you do what you do. And he doesn't forget like we so often do. He doesn't misinterpret or misread a situation. I remember in my first year of teaching, clear as day, um, within the first month or two, grade 11, a grade 11 math class, and there was something going on in the class. I, I couldn't put my finger on it. And it, and I, it took me like two or three days to th- think I had got to the issue of what was going on with two or three students. And so I had come to, I thought I had figured it out. I had addressed them only to find out two or three days after that, that I had blown it. I had made a complete mess of it. And an apology was in order to my students. God is not like that. He will not misjudge, misread, misinterpret your life or mine. He never reads the situation wrongly. He doesn't miss a thing. And he records a perfect assessment of your and my life. And the third thing we want to note is that, and we've already touched on this a little bit, but he's looking down from heaven. He's looking down from that place of holiness where no sin can enter. For he is a just and a holy God. He sees and knows all about us. He knows our our thoughts. He's heard our words. He's seen our actions. He's understood our motives and desires. Nothing is hid from him. From the moment you were conceived to the moment you pass away from this life. Friend, you are an open book to him. And given that he's holy and what he sees is sin and ugliness, it's amazing we are not consumed already. His assessment of us is pointed, it's challenging. As David, as David gets to, as David records the psalm, he doesn't mince words. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. As the Lord looks down, his conclusion is he finds fools who say that there is no God. He finds people who are corrupt. He finds people who have done abominable works. He finds people who have turned aside. He finds people who have are altogether filthy or morally corrupt. He finds none that doeth good. Not even one. So astonishing is this assessment 
And it's not only recorded for us in the scriptures here in Psalm 14 once, but it's recorded three times, this exact statement. Three times we find these these verses in the scripture. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, which is almost identical to Psalm 14, except for a few words here and there. And then in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, the Apostle Paul quotes the psalm again. A threefold echo of the absolute desperate condition of humanity that the Lord sees us in. And friends, we are included in this assessment. This isn't just of David's day. We are ones who have not done any good. We are ones who are corrupt. We are the fool who has said, there is no God. But maybe, maybe, there, maybe there's someone saying, oh, I've never said that. I've never said there's no God. I'm not an atheist. Maybe not so much with words. But the fool that David here is referring to is one who is willfully and, and one who practically fails to heed to the wisdom that the Lord gives and speaks into our lives, resulting in a life that's empty, a life that's filled with sorrow for themselves and, and for others. The, the word, the Hebrew word for fool is nabal, um, or sometimes we say nabal. And children, are you familiar with a man named Nabal in the, in the Old Testament? His word is literally the fool. His name, I mean, is literally, literally the fool. He was married to Abigail. And Nabal is the fool personified. You will remember how he, in response to David's request for supplies and provision for his men and himself, refused to give anything to David and his men. Even though David and his men had been protecting him and his herdsmen and his flocks, Nabal refused to give, supply good gifts to David. And despite his wife's encouragement to change his mind, he refused and he died. He was literally his name. And by nature, we're no different. Despite God's many good gifts to us over and over and over again, we play the fool and we can find ourselves disregarding God and his good gifts towards us. And they they don't lead us to repentance. This this denial of God that we read of here in verse 1 is not just a theoretical denial, a, a, a blatant act of atheism. Nabal probably wouldn't have said that there is no God. But what we have here is is practical atheism, where one negates by their very life that they that there is no God. Where where their life testifies to the reality that they don't actually believe there is a God. It's a life where our actions speak louder than our words where we sin with in our thoughts, words, and deeds, 
We, and, and in sinning, we behave as if there is no God. Thinking that he doesn't really see us. He cannot, he doesn't see our thoughts. He doesn't know my, my motives and that allows us to continue down a path of sin. Or he doesn't hear or remember those unkind words that come out of my mouth so easily. And maybe are sharp and biting, critical. Or when we are in the midst of doing something, a physical action, maybe clicking a link to a website we should not be going to or failing purposely to disclose something on our tax returns or you fill in the blank. We're acting as if God is not present. But he is in heaven. He is looking down. He does see. And his assessment is conclusive. He finds us guilty. He sees us in our unbelief. He sees the corruptness of our hearts. He sees the detestable nature that we have. He sees how completely and comprehensively we have fallen. Notice these all words in, in in this assessment. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. They've all turned aside. Like our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden who were who turned aside at the voice of Satan. Has God not said? What do we turn aside to? As it what enticements, allurements draw us aside? What are we letting dominate our hearts and our minds? David, David or the Lord continues, they're all together become filthy. And this word filthy has the idea of being totally morally corrupt. The word filthy here has a... Um, an example to help us understand maybe this a little bit is children, you have a, a jug of milk in the fridge and maybe it's become sour, spoiled. The whole of it will be corrupted. It's not like you can just skim off the top, the bad milk, and the rest is still good. Once it's sour, the whole thing is sour and it needs to be discarded and tossed. This is what the Lord sees in the sons of men completely, totally corrupted. And there's nothing that can be done to remedy the situation. It's not like you can work a little harder here or do this over here to, to get yourself back to where you need to be. For there's nothing, as the Lord concludes his assessment, there is none that doeth good. 
Have you ever come to see yourself and agree with this assessment that the Lord has of of the sinner? Have you agreed that this is yourself? That you're absolutely, totally fallen? No good. That you're a fool. That I'm a fool. And it's just not that we're incapable of doing any good, but we actually don't even desire to do good. And David's going to build that up in verses 4 through 6, where we actually desire to do things that are unpleasing to the Lord. And in fact, often find ourselves hindering the work of God. We get this in in verses 4 and 6 in particular, where we have the workers of, of iniquity, who are described as those who eat up the people of God as they eat bread. It's so natural for them to hinder and despise the ways of God and his people as it is natural for them to eat. You eat daily. You need to. And friend, when you are living apart from God, it is as natural to you to do iniquity as it is for you to eat. You eat up my people, you consume them, the Lord says. But what does that look like? What does it mean to consume the Lord's people? Well, to eat up has the idea of consumption that leads to one's destruction. And we can think of blatant examples in the scripture and throughout church history of of those who have sought to consume the people of God. We think of Pharaoh's rebellious pursuit to keep the children of Israel in Egypt and and his pursuit to kill off the men as he threw them into the river and or we can think of Haman's determined resolve to eliminate the Jews or we think of Paul's dogged pursuit as he as he pursued and persecuted the the early church but it's not always blatant can be often very subtle. When an unbelieving spouse ridicules a believing wife or husband, attempting to hinder their work and their walk with the Lord. Or an unbeliever who casts doubt on another in whom the Lord is working, raising up an obstacle or stumbling blocks that hinder them in seeking the Lord. Or maybe maybe a, an unbelieving young person, and this could not just young people, but who tempt and challenge a peer, one who has trusted in the Lord Jesus to compromise. Or maybe one who questions whether God could ever save such and such a sinner, leaving them discouraged, doubting. In verse 6, Paul or David refers to it as the wicked are those who would, would like to put to shame the counsels of the poor, the lowly, those who have trusted in the Lord. Have you done that? 
Have you found yourself saying things that have discouraged someone, hurt them, caused them to stumble in their search and their walk with the Lord? The Lord's assessment says that you have, if you are apart from him, if you are not believing, if you have no faith, and you have no spiritual understanding, and the Lord's conclusion of you is all-encompassing, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There's none that doeth good. They are all gone aside. They have all turned together. They, they are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. It's been a sobering, penetrating assessment. Maybe you're wondering, is there hope? Is there a, what's the solution to, to this assessment? We hope to hear the Lord's powerful answer to our dire situation. The very fact that we have this psalm in the scriptures speaks to the hope that there is in the Lord. If the Lord did not desire us, did not desire to have dealings with sinners like us, he wouldn't have told us and given us this psalm. He would have let us grovel in our sins. He would have consumed us immediately in his anger. But he hasn't. At least not yet for you and I. But he comes tonight again and tells us that he is looking down. He is searching to see if there are any who seek after him. He desires to be found. And we get hints of that throughout this psalm. Scattered throughout the first six verses, there are these, as it were, pieces of manna that the Lord wants us to pick up and take hold of and hope for something better. He is looking for a people that understand, who act circumspectly, who seek after God, suggesting that there is a possibility, there is a way for sinners to seek after the Lord. And in verses 4 through 6, we begin to see a group of people who are different. A group that the Lord refers to as my people. Leaving us with this question, how can one become one of the Lord's people? If I am as corrupt and totally corrupt have turned aside and morally deficient, have done no good, how could I be one of the Lord's people? And then in the next verse, verse 5, he, he refers to, for God is in the generation or with the generation of the righteous. Leaving us with this question, how can one be made Righteous. How, how can one who is described, if that's our description in verses 1 through 3, how can we be made righteous? 
And then, and then in verse 6, we, we read of those whom, for whom the Lord is his refuge. It refers to a people who have taken shelter in the Lord from the ridicule and shame of those workers of iniquity. And it leaves us with the question, how does one go from being under the wrath of Almighty God to being sheltered by him from the storm of his wrath? And each of these these should leave us with hope that there is a possibility for for a sinner like me to to who to come to myself to have an understanding that there is a way back to the Lord my sin can be addressed and dealt with so that I I and you can become one of his people who can be declared righteous in his sight who can come under his comprehensive care and shelter but the question is how 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 is this possible for for one like you that we've received our description in verses 1 through 3 well david david directs our attention in verse 7 to what his hope was his expectation but not just his for all of God's people, the hope and expectation for sinners. Oh, that salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. Or we could translate it like this, oh, that, salvation, oh, that the salvation of Israel would be given from Zion. David's expectation is that there's a salvation, that there's deliverance for such wicked people. And it, it was available but it was only, and it could only come from Zion. The only solution to our desperate condition is one that would come from the Lord. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. Salvation had to come from somewhere else. It couldn't come from us, given the Lord's assessment of us. And David draws our attention that it's going to come from Zion. And Zion is a reference to the mountain where the temple was located on. And so David is directing our attention to the mountain, uh, to the temple that's on this mountain. And he's directing our attention to that Old Testament sacrificial system that was present. The, the temple and all that it contained pointed to a way back into the presence of the Lord. It, it pointed to the necessity of blood that had to be shed for for sinners. It pointed to the need for a substitutionary sacrifice for one to take our place. It pointed to the need for a mediator for one to to bridge that gap, that infinite gap between a guilty sinner like you and I are and a holy, just God. David recognized and believed that this way of salvation was possible and it was going to come from Zion. It would come from God himself. And this is what David longed for and believed by faith that it would become a reality. He believed salvation would be given. Jesus would be sent into this world so that he would be lifted up on that cross, so that all who would come and look to him can be cleansed from their sin. 
all who believe on him would be brought into the family of God would be made part of that group, my people. So that all who trust in Christ would be justified, declared perfectly righteous in his sight. And so that they would have a shelter from the storm under the everlasting wings of our Savior who would continue to protect and care for them so that they would never be put to shame. Our God has provided the answer to our great dilemma. He has provided the only way of hope so that we can be made his people, so that we can be declared righteous, so that we can find shelter in him. If you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, friend, the Lord's assessment of you tonight is as real, as as pertinent, is as penetrating as it was when David wrote this psalm. Friend, there is a way. Jesus Christ has come. David looked forward to his coming. We look back to the fact that he has come already. And Christ invites you and he says, come to me and find rest. Come to me and know the salvation of the Lord. And his offers are not spurious or fickle, for he is powerful to save. David continues, Oh, that salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. And then he says, And when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, and the idea here is when the Lord returns them back to their position of fortune, returns them back to a time where they are cleansed from all their sin, they are perfect in his sight, And Jacob shall sing, rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. David is confident. There is certainty in the deliverance of, the, of sinners here. It is in Jacob might rejoice. He shall rejoice. It's not Israel will be, uh, potentially will be glad, but Israel shall be glad. His people the restored people will rejoice in the salvation of the Lord. Have you come to see that you, by nature, are one who has not done an ounce of good, has been totally totally corrupt, completely overpowered by sin? But have you also seen that Jesus Christ is strong, and powerful to save even such as you are. Your children of God, this has been your experience and you know it and you're called to sing, rejoice, and to be glad. Rejoice in what the Lord has done for your soul and know that you have his confident care, powerful care, 
for you shelter under his wings. Yes, there may be challenging times, difficult times, but it's certain, his care. We read that those that challenge the righteous, David says, they were there in great fear. They feared, they feared fear. For God was with the righteous. And he kept them from shaming the counsel of the poor because the Lord was his refuge. But maybe there are some here tonight who you haven't agreed with the Lord's assessment of you. You don't really see yourself as that bad. I don't do any good. Not that bad, am I? And you live life as if you will not die. You, as if you will not have to meet with your maker. You live for the moment. Friend, you're living the life of the fool. Yes, maybe you don't even say those words, but your life demonstrates it. And if this is you, if you've, if you've never come to understand who you are in God's sight, friend, you are in a most pitiful position. You really don't have a, a, a knowledge of who you are. You don't really understand that you are without God and without hope. You really have no lasting comfort in this life. No true purpose, identity, meaning. And there will be a day, as David describes in verse 5, that unless you repent, you will be in great fear. You will be overcome with fear. You will be in utter panic. How long will you persist in your ways? How, how long will you go on not calling out to the Lord? How long will you refuse to seek him? I leave you with these words from Hebrews chapter 3. The Holy Ghost says, Today, if you will hear his voice, Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. And so I swear in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any you, any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Amen.
Lord, we come and we acknowledge that thine assessment of us is accurate, is true. Lord, we have all turned aside. We have all gone our own ways. We have all together become filthy. And there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Lord, we confess that we have sinned and come short of thy glory. We've confessed, we confess, Lord, that we are in need of grace and mercy that is found in Christ alone. And Lord Jesus, help us to believe. Help us to lift up our eyes to the, to the one who was hung on the middle cross, who was lifted up, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness for, for the Israelites who were bitten to look up and to be made whole. So we pray that we, with the eyes of faith, would behold Jesus in his beauty, the one who was given from Zion, and find our deliverance, our restoration. And if we have, Lord, been saved, oh, help us to rejoice and to be glad and to then live lives of thankfulness for thy mercy and grace. Bless us as we take up our callings this week, as we go into our workplaces, our studies, wherever we are called, we pray that we would be found faithful. Pray that Satan would be kept at bay, that he would not hinder thy work, this, the, the word as it's gone out tonight and today. And so bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.